Hi friends, Nick Orvis here. In this episode, Todd, Percy, and I are discussing the mechanics of 5th edition D&D and how they impact the stories you can tell in the game. Included in that is a discussion of the racist and colonialist legacies of the game and how they continue to manifest in the current edition. What we don't mention, because we recorded this episode back in April of 2020, is that as the movement for Black Lives has continued to grow, the D&D community has repeatedly pointed these issues out. And on June 17th, 2020, Wizards of the Coast released a statement titled Diversity and Dungeons and Dragons, outlining ways that they hope to improve the game's representation of racial diversity and real-world cultures. Now, the statement is only a statement, and you can read it on their website. Nothing that we discuss in the episode is any less true now than it was when we recorded. Still, we hope that Wizards is beginning to do the serious work that needs to be done to make their game truly welcoming for everyone. And now, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick Orvis and I'm here with Todd Backus. Hello. And with Percy Hornack. Hi. To discuss the way that mechanics in Dungeons and Dragons, specifically the fifth edition, uh, help with and support the storytelling that you want to do in your game. So to start with, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what fifth edition's mechanics are good at and what they could maybe improve on in terms of storytelling. So what kinds of stories are best told using these mechanics? Percy, Todd? Yeah, so I feel like the the mechanics most clearly support an action-adventure kind of a vibe. Like, you get information, you go to a place, you do combat, you vanquish a foul beast or whatever, and then you, like get your loot and move on. I feel like this is what the mechanics are so clearly gearing uh, the players for with your character sheet being almost exclusively about how well you handle combat and the abilities that you have in combat while also addressing some of the like social uh, abilities that you might have, whether that's to be persuasive or charismatic or so on. Um, But I feel like by and large, the system is built around this action adventure vibe. I don't think you're wrong, but I think um, that was a that was a spicy way to dive into that. <laughs> Give it to me. Um, I I somewhat disagree, if only because I think at least in in fifth edition, like there are entire subclasses that are based less around combat. Like for example, um, the glamour bard subclass is built almost entirely around um, charm spells, which are not like are are, mm-hmm. are useful in combat but actually i would argue actually i'd argue they are not useful in combat because they kind of are predicated on everybody else in the party not fighting the person that you're talking but i think mm-hmm. the origin of D is very much geared toward like going through a dungeon and and killing monsters and and finding loot but i think the game has has expanded somewhat and while the mechanics are not necessarily the smoothest for social encounters i think that is more because it is hard as people playing the game to find the balance between how to employ the mechanics and also how to balance that with role playing. And I think it's less about 
the mechanics themselves. Um, like I think, especially if you're playing in a, in a D and D official setting like Faerun or, or whatever, there is so much lore and information available that like my favorite D and D story to do is like a political intrigue story where you are finding information and navigating different factions and, and doing a lot of, a lot of social encounters and, and, you know, unweaving mysteries and uncovering secrets, that kind of thing. Um, I also think, the D&D has a lot of mechanics that are not often used that have to do with survival. I am guilty of not tracking things like encumbrance and how much ammunition I have because that is boring and not fun. But I think D&D <laughs> is well equipped um, for people who are interested in that kind of story. Like I, th- I think D&D has a ton of uh, mechanics that are good for stories about having to ration your supplies and hunt for food in the wilderness. Um, There's even a variant rule called gritty realism in which short rests take eight hours and long rests take a full week. So you are spending a lot of your gameplay figuring out how to ration your resources in terms of spell slots and class abilities and also how much food and water you have and that kind of thing. So I think um, I think that is underutilized, but I think that is another thing that D&D is good at, Um, although arguable how many people want to engage in that kind of story my, my kind of allergic reaction to this kind of thing is often I, I feel like there's a group of people who will tell you dungeons and dragons is good at like dungeons and dragons can be whatever you want it to be and uh, i mean yes but only if you kind of like whack it with a hammer until it's in the shape that you want it to be for your game at its heart dungeons and dragons is a tactical combat engine with yeah. some little bits that have been added onto it. And that is always what it has been best at. I, I mean, even just looking at the rule book, you know, you have hundreds of pages on combat and movement in combat and actions in combat and spells are hundreds of pages, most of which not all and actually fewer. I've noticed in fifth edition than in previous editions, which I think is good. Um, but most of which most of the spells are geared toward combat and then all of your social interactions are covered by the charisma score three skills and i guess also i guess a fourth skill that's insight but otherwise it's right isn't it just there's deception persuasion and uh, intimidation and like those are your three tools for solving any interpersonal conflict without a weapon are Let's not undervalue the performance skill. (laughs) Oh, that's true. I forgot about performance. That's true. You can also play your loot at people (laughs) to convince them to do what you want. Um, So that that, that is true. But yeah, it's uh, it's a machine for fighting. And even the ways I just started a new group recently that includes a a player who's playing a pacifist character, which is cool. But like. She has felt compelled by the game. Not I don't think she's having a bad time or anything, but like, what does that mean? Well, it means that she uses spells like when a fight breaks out, she uses spells like entangle that, you know, just restrain someone without harming them rather than, you know, ice knife where you stab someone with an icicle that explodes. <laughs> so Wait, yeah. there's First actually levels. a spell called ice knife. Yeah, it's yes, in Xanathar's I- Guide to Everything. <laughs> Sidebar, first level spells in 5th edition are way stronger than in previous editions, and it has been an adjustment for me. <laughs> the, bur- the Burning Hand spell, for example, mm. has ballooned from, like, 
a, a little a little baby spell to a cone of fire that comes out. It's fine. Um, I mean, yeah, I I think I don't know. Maybe it's because my I I tend to play with groups who are primarily people who do theater or primarily people who are interested in extended role play encounters. But I I tend to have players who are interested in things like puzzles, um, which is I think a big trope of of D anD D. And now that I think about it. Things like riddles and puzzles require no mechanical input and are actually entirely mm-hmm. player driven. So your point stands and I concede. Um, <laughs> and I think, in fact, like it is mechanically a bad idea to let people roll to solve a puzzle. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, sure. my other my my hot take on puzzles and riddles is that I don't love them in D&D because because they depend entirely on the player's. My only experience of riddles and puzzles, because there's no mechanical support for them, is either like you present it and immediately one of the players is like, oh, I get it. And it's over. Or in which case, was it worth it? Or you present it and then four and a half hours later, you're like, you know what? Here's a here's a really ham fisted clue as to what the explanation is, because nobody's getting it. The actual solution to this problem that I have found as a DM is one of two things, which this is a tangent and I apologize. Either I have given players a literal puzzle to solve and timed them doing it. Mm. And then in fiction, we said, okay, that's how much time it took you to solve the rune door or whatever. Or, um, I will present them a puzzle, and then as soon as they have figured out something that sounds interesting to solve it, I will tell them that it worked, as opposed to having predetermined, like, this is the answer. Um, mm-hmm. I will just wait for something that sounds good and be like, that sounds that sounds good. Um, well, so, so yeah. yeah, go ahead. Um, in, in the campaign that I'm working on right now, my players wanted to do, like, a heist, And so it's my first time DMing and I was trying to do all of this research on like, how does one do a heist in Dungeons and Dragons? And a lot of people have asked this question because uh, to your point earlier, Percy, and uh, to yours as well, Nick, um, there are many people who view it as, to quote the cover of the books, the world's greatest role-playing game, um, they believe that one should be able to tell any story in it very well and easily. Um, And yet there aren't mechanics for like, how does one pull off a heist? You can use your stealth, you can use deception, um, but those aren't really the things that make a heist very exciting. What makes a heist exciting is like information gathering, figuring out how to get around traps that perhaps you didn't even see to begin with. So I've been doing a lot of research about like, how do we push that into this system in a way that makes sense with the boundaries that are already there um, and also make it exciting and engaging. And one of the things I came up against, um, which is, I think, kind of dangerous, is that for a mystery um, to really feel good, the players need to be able to solve it, but also the players need to be able to not solve it. Yeah, Um, right. Like, otherwise, we're just like pushing them through this narrative that feels like they're doing a thing, whether they're doing it or not. And for me, what it's made exciting and what we've done is a lot of social interaction and a lot of different avenues where as someone who plays a lot of video games um, and has thought about like how quests are built, um, I've been doing a lot of 
thinking about like, okay, how do we mechanically make this make sense? How do we say there's a masquerade ball, there's a time limit, there's eight targets that you can follow and interact with them and try to figure out which one is your mark and what information you want to get out of them is like a thing that we did for three hours one night, which to me was very exciting, but like mechanically has so little to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Like I invented a time mechanic that is not there. Um, we did social interaction that is there and we like use dice rolls to figure out things and I doled out information to them in character. But like it's not really what the system is built around. It was like, how do we modify this and how do we do that? Um and I am realizing that the the thing that I was about to tell you works great for a heist is not rules as written Dungeons and Dragons, but is in fact content created by another person for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so I am I, I concede that this is is really a system that is combat oriented or at the very least is oriented toward like if you look even at like the most popular feats in fifth edition, there are things like great weapon fighting and sharpshooter mm-hmm. and sentinel and warcaster that make you better in combat at doing the thing that you do, as opposed to feats like actor or athlete or uh, or alert, where you can't be surprised or you are particularly good at mimicry or things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think I think you are <laughs> you are right. <laughs> <laughs> As a side note, if you want to do a heist skill challenges, Matt Colville, check it out. Oh, cool. No, I was I was going to say one of the great things about tabletop role playing games is that there is such a huge community of people like inventing stuff for them. I just also think that then like, yeah, the creators of Dungeons and Dragons don't get credit (laughs) for like the things that the players have subsequently invented. I had a friend once who told me, oh, I've played Dungeons and Dragons. What? And then she said. Well, kind of. I played a little bit of modified Dungeons and Dragons and I was like, oh, what was that like? And she's like, well, it's in a Western setting. I said, oh, okay." And then she said, and yeah, the ability scores were we had four abilities and they were rootin', tootin', scootin' and shootin'. That's so good. And I was like, that sounds amazing. It is also not, not Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) You're you're playing somebody's amazing, like home crafted game and awesome. But. I think that has officially like stopped being Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I think that is a kind of a prevailing problem in the in the role playing community is that Dungeons and Dragons is such a recognizable, pervasive presence that people feel the need to adapt it into the game that they want to play as opposed to finding the actual game that they want to play or creating the game that they want to play. Um, like I see a lot of people reskin Dungeons and Dragons into a space themed game or a Star Wars themed game when in reality you could play any one of the very, very good Star Wars games available, you know, as opposed to adding guns into the D&D universe, you could play a game that has guns in it already. Um, mm-hmm. You know, right. like, I, yeah, I, th- I think you're right that there is a, and I think that comes from the fact that D&D is such a, such a name in, in the TTRPG community that, and especially like if you're new to this kind of world, you're probably going to want to play the thing that has a name that you recognize as opposed to, um, I want to play a game of Bluebeard's Bride, this very niche powered by the apocalypse pirate game. I'm laughing because Nick very much wants to play. I, well, I simultaneously, everybody should check out Bluebeard's Bride. I simultaneously want to play and am terrified by that. Like that's a scary game. (laughs) Have you read Bluebeard? (laughs) 
it's terrifying. I, yeah, it's it's appropriate. It's, I I don't I don't do like horror a lot, so reading mm. through the like playbook of Bluebeard's Bride was like deeply emotionally distressing. <laughs> that actually, I actually think horror is another thing that D and D doesn't do particularly well. In part, I think because in my experience, many tables don't necessarily want to spend their limited free time doing that. Um, and the mechan- but the mechanics also don't support it particularly well. Like the horror RPGs that I can think of, like Dread or Ten Candles, have these mechanics baked into them that are themselves thrilling and exciting and scary, whereas D&D doesn't. And um, there is not a ton of support for that, in addition to the fact that it's very easy to you know be a silly cat person who wears plumed hats and is a rogue swashbuckler. You know, like I, th- I think yeah. the the game can also lend itself to things being pretty silly. And I think a lot of people take it in that direction. Well, and I think and we can start talking about the mechanics a bit more broadly. Um, one of the things that Dungeons and Dragons, I think, does really well is it looks at Western power fantasy. Um, and so it is in some ways wish fulfillment and in some ways like, ah, oh, yeah, I wish I could use a sword that cool or like I wish I knew how to make magic happen. Um, and from a game design perspective, um, this is kind of antithetical to horror. Horror at its at its core is about vulnerability and being up against unimaginable odds. And so. This is a thing that happens a lot in video games, which is more of my background, where in in terms of like how your character gets stronger over the course of the game um, in a horror game that is like based on this Western power fantasy structure, um, the horror tends to be removed as you become more and more capable of dispatching your foes. And so something that is a bit like Dread or a bit like Ten Candles that makes things more interesting is if your character gets weaker, the longer the story goes on, the inevitability um, of your apparent doom uh, looms larger as the game goes on. And that's one of the terrifying things about Ten Candles, um, having played that a couple months back now, Um, but also something that horror games like video games are starting to look into is like how do we balance the like i want to be a strong space marine versus like what if everything was terrifying and going to kill you um, yeah and i think that has to do also with objectives because like as we've said D is very often there's rats in my basement i need you to go kill them and i'll give you money for it um whereas if you look at because a thing that what you were talking about reminds me of also is um call of cthulhu which has Mm. this sort of ongoing the more you exist in that world the more likely it is that you will lose your sanity um and the and the the thinner the division between the terrifying world where all of the scary shit resides and the world that you're living in gets thinner and thinner and and overlaps more and more um and people have written sanity rules for D and D. Um, but very often I think they manifest as detriments to your skills or, um, Mm. or things like that where it doesn't, it doesn't feel scary. Like it just feels, it just feels like an inconvenience, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in critical role. Uh, there is a character who suffers from PTSD and has to roll a wisdom save whenever he encounters his specific trigger. Um, but that, and that is interesting, but I think that requires a lot of investment on the part of the person role playing that character oh, yeah. um, in order to to make that work. Like mechanically, 
that doesn't do a lot. Yeah. Thinking about what, like, the arc of stories that get told usually with D&D and what it kind of lends itself to, it strikes me that, Todd, what you pointed to about it being about Western power fantasies means that, I think especially 5th edition Dungeons Dragons lends itself to the grand heroic moment, TM. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Especially when you think about, like, specific things like uh, the advantage-disadvantage mechanic, um, mm-hmm. Where in so in fifth edition D anD D, if you attempt to do something, uh, you're going to roll d twenty and add something to it. And if you are in a particularly advantageous position, you can roll twice and use the higher result. And this is something that's new with fifth edition that didn't exist in previous editions of Dungeons and Dragons. And I think that mechanic really pushes it along with the idea of inspiration, which you can give out to basically that basically somebody can spend it to get advantage. Correct. Yeah, you can you can spend it to reroll. And there's also things like the luck feat, which is explicitly like I want to be able to reroll dice that don't work out in my favor. Right. So all of these mechanics are pushing toward the like grand single action, which feels like often the climax of that Western power fantasy. In contrast to like, I'm thinking about your example of the heist earlier. Uh, I don't know if in your research you found the game Blades in the Dark. I've heard of it. Yes. They have a very interesting mechanic. Yeah, I was going to say, you you may know more about this than I do, but I, I haven't played it. I have a friend who plays it regularly, and my understanding is that there you actually kind of retroactively invent uh, mm-hmm. things and like justify how your character is able to accomplish something, right? Yeah, so one of the cool things about this system is uh, you like acquire intelligence. There's like a planning phase and then a heist phase. And as the heist goes... Um, things can go sideways um, and you can choose to use the intelligence that you've stored up and spend an intelligence point to be like, oh, that guard, they don't walk through right now because we actually paid them off before this happened. And then you like use that currency of an intelligence point, but it prompts the players to like work to build up this currency such that they are able to do cool shit like that while also not knowing how many things they might have to be up against well and what that does narratively is you know dungeons and dragons is i i think lends itself toward a very um like traditional dramatic story arc um you know what sarah rule calls the like male orgasm story arc of like things build up and then there's like a big climactic thing there's a battle with the big bad evil thing and then it's over but in that you know what those spending intelligence points does is it lets you pull off the oceans 11 thing where it's like wait how did they do that or how are they going to do this surprise flashback and we see like what already happened which is where a lot of the like enjoyment of a heist movie i think comes from and so that that like narrative structure is actually built into the game in a very smart way where in dungeons and dragons which is all about like slowly increasing your power and like becoming able to defeat these things i think a lot of people would feel cheated if it was like ah in the big climactic battle we were going to lose but a thing was invented 
and insert it into our past. So now we win. Like, I honestly think a lot of players would feel that that was a like kind of a cop out. (laughs) Totally, totally. Yeah, I think another sort of pivoting, another interesting sort of mechanic is because in general, D&D gives you a lot of currency that translates into in-game abilities. So the spell slot system, which is is different in fifth edition than it has been in previous editions, is, is essentially you have X amount of energy in a day in these really specific increments to use magic. Um, and there are certain mechanics by which you regain those uh, those increments, but you can spend a slot to cast a spell of a certain level. And maybe it's more powerful if you use a higher level slot sort of thing. But I think the sort of theme of D&D mechanics in general is translating resources into the spendable currency, um, whether it be key points for monks or sorcery points or spell slots. So as and I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but as someone who's only played fifth edition, uh, one of the things that was kind of described to me, but I could be wrong about this. I might be misremembering. Who knows? Is that cantrips were a new feature? Is that true? Well, not exactly. I think that I think they their function is different than it was or the justification of them is different than it. Go Basically, ahead. my understanding was that cantrips were modified or invented um, to allow spellcasters to always have like a baseline level of magic that they could do even if they expended all of their spell slots, but that they were often weaker and a bit different in terms of how they were used um, to try and motivate players, though I, again, could be wrong about this, to try to motivate players to find non-combat-specific solutions to problems because 5th edition is actually like harder to just like run and gun in than previous editions. Maybe. I don't know if I think that's true. What, what they changed about cantrips is... So cantrips, and Percy, you might be able to speak to this in more detail. Cantrips have been around in some versions since at least third edition, I think. Yeah. The In terms of there being spells that spellcasters can just always cast. The main difference, in my view, coming as I am from kind of like 3.5 and a little experience in 4th edition to 5th edition, is that in 5th edition, the cantrips are actually much more, like, powerful. Yes. You mm. know, in 3.5, say, one of the cantrips was like acid splash. So no matter what, if you're a wizard and you're in a pickle in combat, you can always cast the spell that shoots a little thing of acid at your foe. Which, is, did, which is, in fact, a 5th edition cantrip. But, um, poison spray, yeah. There's also acid splash. Oh, acid splash? Okay. Yeah. Okay, um, but for yeah. an example of how they changed it, poison spray does a D12 damage or something like that, and then it scales at higher levels. In the days of 3.5, acid splash did 1D3 damage. Yeah. And Which it is... never changed. <laughs> yeah. I And I think that has a lot to do with the way the different editions approach resource management. Um because I think fifth edition also does an interesting thing where you have this new class, um, the warlock class, which regains spell slots on a short rest, not a long rest, which is bizarre, bizarrely different from the other spellcasting classes. Um, and the trade off is you only have two spell slots. But in fifth edition, I think in theory, the recommendation in fifth edition is that you're having several encounters between short rests. Um, that tax the players a lot more. But in practice, I think very often 
there is no penalty for taking a short rest between every single combat encounter. And there's only so many times that you as the DM can have, you know, a dragon swoop in and interrupt people's short rest before it feels unfair. Um, So I think part of that also has to do, like, I think there is an evolving way that, that the game approaches how many resources you're asking players to spend in between when they get certain resources back. And I think cantrips, yeah, cantrips are certainly more powerful in in this edition. And I think there are a lot of them that tend to have more practical uses as opposed to just combat damage. Um, I think spellcasting in general has evolved to not be quite as combat heavy. Um, there are a lot of spells like Disguise Self that have no combat application, really. I think you would be hard pressed to find a combat application for Disguise Self. I think the because a lot of those spells and this is a whole other discussion maybe but because a lot of those spells existed in previous editions but one thing i've noticed playing this game a little bit more now is that there was a tendency because this this game has its roots in like tolkien fantasy um there's a tendency to latch your ability to cast spells to like where that archetypal character would be able to do it so like is this a thing that merlin can do or a thing that harry potter can do in his first year at hogwarts and that was sort of the be all end all of like where we put spells i've noticed that some things have been moved kind of like down the ladder in a way that promotes less strict combat focus i there's a bunch of i'm running a game right now that has two druids and one ranger in it um so they talk to every animal but one thing i've noticed is that they have the resources to talk to to talk to every animal and Mm -hmm. in a lot of older editions that was something you often couldn't do until you were at least like a couple levels up there but now because it's something that's available at first level i I feel like players are like oh this is a thing like this is a tactic i can use whereas if you spend your first three levels with your only solution being stab it then that's what you're going to default to in the future. But I also think that's interesting. You have cantrips like thaumaturgy or prestidigitation, mm-hmm. which a lot of people write off as useless. And my hot take is the only useless cantrips are true strike and blade word, um, <laughs> which are useless. Um, but I think it's nice that you have so many options that encourage creative solutions to problems. Cause there are, I think, I think you have to be intentional about finding an application for making your voice boom 300 times its normal volume but that can also be super useful yeah it's incredibly useful when you're trying to roll intimidation and you're out of spell slots yeah as a warlock (laughs) (laughs) yeah so since we've been talking a little bit about sort of the way that things were in previous editions of dungeons and dragons versus fifth edition um one of the biggest things that has changed in fifth edition is this concept of bounded accuracy which um this is massively kind of oversimplifying, but essentially any any creature or encounter could pose a threat regardless of the level of the party. Because as a as a player, as you level your abilities, there is a limit to how many ability score increases you get. There's only so good at a certain thing that you can be. Um, whereas in previous editions, your plus to hit could balloon to like a ridiculous amount and you could level to a ridiculous amount of power. Whereas in fifth edition that there is sort of a cap on how powerful you, your character can be. Um, So the goblins that you fight in the woods of Phandalin at first level 
could still be challenging to you when you come back at 10th level. It just depends on the circumstances. And and 5th edition encourages dungeon masters to impose different different things like terrain and um, minions and traps and things like that to make encounters more difficult later on. Um, but this is very different from previous editions where you sort of had to match the challenge rating of a monster very specifically to the party or it would either be incredibly easy or deathly difficult. Yeah, the I think previous editions often had a much bigger kind of numbers game going on. Um, the detriment of that potentially being situations can arise where it's like, how many of these seven circumstantial plus ones and plus twos and plus threes can I add to this situation to get my numbers as high as they can be, which fifth edition has nicely eliminated in favor of bounded accuracy and advantage and the fact that advantage and disadvantage cancel each other out so you're like never rolling more than two dice and adding almost always a single digit number whereas back in like ad and in second edition you were rolling every roll for your armor class based on like how you were standing and the way the wind was blowing and like all like you were every every single roll to hit was a an equation like a very complicated calculation to figure out based on a whole bunch of different circumstances so like as uh, a fifth edition player the only time i feel this ever comes up is when our rogues are trying to determine if it's a sneak attack so is that what you're saying is that like the situational like because this is just this is all I've experienced. So the only time mm-hmm. that like positionality and like, oh, this person's five feet away from me and therefore I have advantage on this blah, blah, blah. And it's a sneak strike or whatever. Um, well, for example, if you think about the the flanking rule that yeah. gives you advantage if you're flanking with somebody in a game system without advantage and disadvantage, that becomes a different a different thing that is a lot more of a numbers game. And I don't remember exactly what the old mm-hmm. flanking rules were. Totally. So it's also the big secret that I feel like 5th edition D&D doesn't advertise to people is that it's secretly a proficiency gateway system, not a numbers game. I, th- I think the better example is in 5th edition D&D, you have this proficiency bonus, and then you just get to add that to the things that you're proficient in. Great. But that difference is so much relatively greater because all the numbers are smaller that that is the main determiner of your character, whereas in 3.5, say, you know, the, the thing that is distinctive about the fighter in 5th edition is that it gets proficiency in all weapons and all armor, and then they get these special kind of, like, maneuvers they can do. In 3.5, one of the things that is distinctive about the fighter is that at every level, their attack bonus increased by one. Mm-hmm. Like, every oh. single time. And that's alone before you factor in things like did I get to increase my strength score, which is also factored in at this level as well. And before you factor in things like feats, like maybe I have a feat called weapon specialization recurve longbow made by elves, in which case I get a plus one only to attack rolls I make with a recurve longbow made by elves. Yeah, Like I'm exaggerating slightly for comedic effect, but like not a lot. <laughs> And even like um, in 3.5, the way that you allocate points to skills to determine what your bonus in a given skill is, is when you level up based on um, factors that I can't recall right now. But it's essentially like certain ability scores times two. There's a there's a calculation due that determines how many points you have to allocate to different skills when you level up. 
and then you just pick individual things to add points to. And there is a limit um, to how many you can add per level or how high that score is allowed to be. Um, and there are certain skills. I think they, they distinguish it by like things that you know how to do and things that you don't know how to do. And there are certain skills that anybody can do. And there are certain skills that you have to have some kind of familiarity with in order to accomplish them. Like I think riding a horse, you have to know or something like, I don't remember what the exact word is at this moment, but um, yeah. So there is no proficiency. It's an individual with every single skill or every single role that you might make. There is a score calculated based on its own set of factors. So you're telling me fifth edition is more accessible and therefore may have led to the boom that we're seeing now in Dungeons and Dragons players. 100%. Although I also (laughs) think it's worth noting that every, I mean, I don't have access to market data, but my understanding from talking to people who are like older and more experienced in this hobby and to just general scuttlebutt is that every edition of Dungeons and Dragons has been more successful than the previous one. Mm. Fair, 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 fair. That has yeah. been its like long trend is away from, again, away from like strictly simulationist wargaming to something that is accessible for people to pick up and play. Because, hey, if you make that product, people can actually buy it and play it with less difficulty. And then you make more money. So, yeah. But then there are people who like I have a I have a friend who loves 3.5 and I think I don't know that she will only DM in 3.5, but I know when we started a game a few years ago, she said, we're doing 3.5. No, quit, like no, no arguments about it. We're doing 3.5 because um, that's her preference. And they're like, I think that's very valid because there are some people who like the math element and some people who like the nitty gritty, like figuring out, OK, what applies in this specific situation and how do I navigate that? Because also I think a thing that 3.5 does well is that it's your ability to specialize within your class. Like I think prestige classes are super cool and not really a thing that 5e has. Um, Can you describe that a little as someone who doesn't play these other versions and has no idea what a prestige class is? uh, Essentially, it's like um, like you have a core class that you can pick at your first level and a prestige class is like Mm -hmm. you're super advanced and it's like a super special thing that has more prerequisites to it is kind of the simplest explanation like it's like a subclass but cooler well you know do you know how multi-classing works in fifth edition D? yeah i understand multi-classing so prestige classes were basically multi-classing but you had to have certain you had to have met certain requirements to be able to multi-class into them oh cool yeah yeah, yeah. so and like... they often had like very specialized roles so like if you had I'm making this up, but it's vaguely correct. If you had the ability to deal a certain amount of sneak attack damage and you had certain scores in stealth and sleight of hand, you could become a shadow dancer, which was kind of like a magic assassin. But you had to meet those prerequisites and nobody else could tag into it. My favorite prestige class is actually a Pathfinder class. There is a dramaturg prestige class. Yes, the Argent Dramaturg, I think it's, it's called. It's so good. Yes, it is. I love it yeah. so much. Yep. I think they're using it in the European sense of, like, writer of plays. Uh, yeah. Maybe. I don't remember. They, um, it's, I think it's, like, an expert in why bards' songs are magical. Ah, yeah. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. Or something like that, which is, which is cool. I We love representation. Um, <laughs> it does use the E. It's fine. Um, oh. Mm. Hard, hard G. Um, all the time but yeah i I think um 
fifth edition kind of limits your ability to get super, super specific. Um, mm-hmm. But that comes the tra- this trade off is that you can be super versatile. And that is also really fun. I will say swinging around to bounded accuracy one more time for our last kind of discussion of additions. What's interesting as a choice about the bounded accuracy is I do feel like in some ways it works against the general narrative of D&D, which is one of like accumulating power and becoming more heroic. And this is 100% a subjective taste thing, but like the fact that goblins are a threat at first level and also at 10th level is a thing that some players love. And then some players are like, I've spent three years, you know, training and like becoming more adept and so on. Why have I not made any progress away from, you know, why are dire rats still a thing I have to worry about killing me? So I think that's, and obviously in fifth edition, it's not quite that simplified, but that's a, one of the choices I have more trouble wrapping my head around. And sort of using that to pivot also to, to sort of our next topic, which is, which is house rules. What you, I think, often see a thing that I do for example is like when my players are at 10th level and they are traveling I will not make them stop and make camp and set a watch every single night because I can reasonably assume that they will be able to dispatch any bandits that come across their camp Um, and it's more interesting to just proceed with the thing that we're doing and there are some parties that I'm sure find that interesting and there are some DMs who probably keep up the charade so that they have the option of like you're camping by a beach and a dragon turtle washes up on shore and attacks like, you know, like I think there, there is a world where that can still be relevant, but there are also certainly, I think is a lot of hand waving of that kind of thing as you progress, perhaps in part because it is more interesting to pursue that. Like we're building power towards, towards a peak, toward a goal um, rather than oh, goblins again. <laughs> um now I just want to run a 1 through 20 campaign in 5th edition that's nothing but goblins. I, Only goblins. <laughs> you're going to end up making a lot of homebrew homebrew goblin <laughs> variants. So I think um, I think that I would love to touch on it because we've touched on a lot of uh, things about 5th edition D&D that are not great or things that this system doesn't accommodate super well, but a way to sort of get around that or because even there are some rules as written that I don't love um, just because they aren't particularly well suited to my play style or my preferences as a DM. Um, But you get around them with house rules. Um, There are a lot of people who will institute rules to make combat move faster because a lot of people get bored with how long combat takes in fifth edition. Um, So they'll do things like um, everybody rolls initiative and everybody who scores above the monster goes at the same time. And everybody who scores below the monster score goes at the same time because it keeps things moving faster. Um, Stuff like that. Like, I think that is a really cool option available um, in terms of just, the game is is set up in such a way that you can pick and choose what you want to do. Um, and there are a lot of variant rules. There are a lot of things that are in place and tools available to help you tailor the game to your table. Yes. And I think that it, it can't be overstated that that accessibility um, and ease of play for new players and for people to like take and tinker with um, is one of the best things about fifth edition D&D. Yeah, I think I think a kind of an elephant in this room um, is if you look at the evolution of D&D, it is built on a lot of colonialist and sort of racist assumptions and this sort of, as we said, Western power fantasy. Um, And that is a thing that is that is present in tons of published D&D content that is kind of hard to hard to avoid. Absolutely. 
there, there's kind of two big buckets here, and I think both are worthy of discussion. One is how this colonialism and racism manifests in like D&D settings and the like you mentioned, Percy, the published D&D adventures. And then there's also ways that those like elements of colonialism and racism are actually deeply baked into the rules themselves that I think I hope Dungeons and Dragons and it's like partner or not partner, but uh, sibling games are like slowly pulling away from. Uh, but it is an ongoing process that definitely is not done with fifth edition. Totally. And like um, one of the, we mentioned earlier um, and earlier in the podcast and previous episodes, um, we've talked about the fact that like D and D is largely based around this desire to simulate like Lord of the Rings esque fantasy um, that was popular in the eighties. So Conan, the barbarian um, Tolkien uh, a bunch of other like different fictional worlds that are all predicated on a lot of colonialism and racism. Uh, the orcs and the Urukai are like very troubling from a modern perspective in a way that was like, for some reason, fine, as long as you call them fantasy names uh, when Tolkien was writing, which like, not great. Gonna just like, not great that. Um, and I'm thinking a lot about, um, particularly the, this seems dumb, but like the Hobbit movies, um, there, there was the, when, what's his name? Peter, whatever. Jackson, 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 Peter Jackson. I almost said Peter Brooke. (laughs) I almost did too. It was alarming for a second in my brain. Different director. (laughs) Um, But when Peter Jackson was making the Hobbit trilogy, he did this very outlandish thing that upset a lot of purists of Tolkien. He put a woman in it. They made up a woman character. And so there was one woman of a major two women of major dramatic significance in the whole piece. And there were a lot of people. Second one. Uh, there was this like weird half elf lady that's one of Orlando Bloom's friends. I don't know. <laughs> it's a long time since I've seen this. But the I thing is, um, exactly. Uh, the thing <laughs> is that like there's expectations that we have about narratives, even if they are rooted in something that came before. That we have expectations that like we will match the the timbre of the age and like where we are as a society now and there's a lot of people who will still like pull against that as purists not because they are necessarily coming from like a racist ideology actively um but are entrenched in like what that particular idea or moment or experience was for them as a young person and so like if you say hi the Lord of the Rings is incredibly racist. There's a lot of people who will get their hackles up about that. And in a similar way, saying like Dungeons and Dragons has a lot of terrifying and like really upsetting stereotypes and tropes that are based on colonialist practices will get people's hackles up. But I think it's important to understand and engage with critically the media and the narratives that we consume and say like, hey, this this part of it, not great. Um, let's examine like where that comes from and also how we can do better. Um, so in terms of, uh, the mechanics that are baked in, do either of you want to foot that a little bit? Well, I think, uh, 
a, a, a rather obvious problem putting aside the issue of like choosing a character race and that term in general, the fact that you have ability score bonuses that are assigned on the basis of what your race is, is incredibly like eugenics-y and, and not great. Um, and I think there are more elegant ways to do what they're trying to do, which is let you customize your character such that you are su- best suited to a specific class. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, I think the way that D and D handles race in general is a little, is a little clunky beyond just that. Like, I think if you look at, at the lore, there is a sort of expectation that there are some races that are more quote unquote exotic or more likely to not be accepted. Um, And I think that is an issue that you can certainly encounter in your game. If that's something that your players want to explore, but baking into the mechanics of a system that half orcs are dumb and don't, I can't go to the city without getting harassed um, is, is not, is not great. Um, setting aside also the issue of like having half races in general is also a little, a little funny um, without any specific mechanics or, or thought about like what exactly that means. Yeah. I, I, I think the, the one you just pointed to Percy, that's the big, probably the single biggest and most deeply entrenched uh, problem in the mechanics of the game is those racial ability score modifiers, which are, yeah, like super eugenics-y and, and I think have to be done away with at some point somehow. I think the challenge, and this is something that I find myself thinking about, um, and this is a little bit of a challenge from a lore perspective too. The challenge is how do you keep the game accessible while not perpetuating these tropes. And I'm confident that this is possible. It's just not what D&D has been set up to do because, you know, what the... I think the reason those things are enduring beyond the racism is that a game that gives you Lego blocks to play with is a lot more easy for people to get into than a game that gives you instructions on how to build a biplane. like from scratch with your hands so that's you know a lot of people have proposed things like expanding the backgrounds and making your i'm just going to say species because generally that is what dungeons and dragons is actually talking about um when it talks about quote-unquote race um it's not talking about ethnicity or any way that we uh talk about race in the real world um but like making your species something that has no effect on your ability scores and instead saying okay before you started adventuring were you a soldier great then maybe you have bonuses to strength and constitution mm-hmm. because you know that is something that is part of your lived experience not something that is inborn in your blood in this very very gross eugenics racist way <laughs> I think another sort of thing that is sort of baked into the system, and this sort of also ties to like published settings and things like that, is that Dungeons and Dragons like will will often rely on stereotypes of of other cultures. Um, for example, mm-hmm. the monk class is one enormous racist stereotype of Asian cultures. Um, it is allowing you to play a quote unquote ninja um, is tying in. Uh, weapons like nunchucks and shuriken um, in in a way that I think is is homogenizing a lot of different cultures into one thing in a way that is not great uh, and also is playing on a lot of stereotypes. Um, 
And that is a whole character class that you can play, which is which is less than great. And this also manifests in published settings and published adventures. For example, um, I think the fifth edition version of this does it a little bit better, but is still pretty problematic. If you look at the adventure Tomb of Annihilation, which takes place in the fictional setting of Cholt, which is intended to be sort of uh, like the continent of Africa, um, that does another like that also does a lot of homogenizing several distinct cultures into one single sort of conglomerate of of different practices. Um, all of the native languages spoken on Chult have clicking in them, even though there are a wealth of languages spoken in Africa, not all of which contain clicking. Like there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of frankly laziness in terms of uh, how these things have been constructed in an attempt to be diverse and represent other cultures, but it is actually just uh, harmful. And one of the challenges I think Dungeons and Dragons specifically faces with that, and this is not to excuse it at all, to be clear, but yeah. um, but one of the challenges that uh, a game that Dungeons and Dragons faces that, for example, indie tabletop RPG gamers don't, is that they are dealing with both a customer base and a kind of established lore that goes back to the like 1980s or whenever it was that ed greenwood first like imagined the forgotten realms which then became faerun so you (laughs) i i think there is an impulse to be like ah but this is our thing like this is our precious much beloved Mm -hmm. setting that we have to maintain in some way and also now we're trying to be more inclusive but like the setting was still conceived in the 1980s, I mean, there are there are game settings that were conceived in the like mid 2000s that are plenty problematic, let alone the ones mm. from 40 years ago. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's a an ongoing challenge for Dungeons and Dragons specifically as a as a game and as a brand. The good news is that you don't have to play in those worlds if you don't want to. Yeah. And what I think is exciting is if you look at the Dungeon Master's Guide, it is predominantly a guide on how to create your own worlds and um, how to put those things together. And I think there is the really beautiful thing about the community that has sprung up around Dungeons and Dragons in the wake of fifth edition is that there are all of these people who are pointing out the problems with the system and the problems with the published content and saying, okay, and here's the thing that I made that's better. Um, you know, let's talk about why this is bad. Let's, let's, you know, make our own thing that fixes it. Like, I think there are many people who have come up with alternate, uh, alternates for the racial ability score system. As Nick mentioned, um, there are people who are writing their own adventures in settings that are faithful and truly representative of non-Western cultures. Um, there are people who are actively writing adventures that are not about conquest and are not about settling and colonizing uh, unexplored land and that kind of thing. Um, I think there is a really beautiful community that is finding a way forward. And there's also a community that is finding uh, games that are not D&D, uh, games that sort of cover cover new ground and are not relying on or do not have this kind of tough history with with racism and colonialism and we're going to be uh, exploring some of those games in future seasons of this podcast so keep listening for that i mean i think when you get right down to it D is not necessarily a game in as much as it is a, a set of tools with which to to create a game and with which to tell a story and i think 
as we said earlier, the great thing about it is you can pick and choose what is useful to you and get, you know, jettison the rest. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what everyone who's listening to this podcast goes out and makes now. Yeah. um, And I, as someone who uh, has mostly only played fifth edition and specifically just D and D, um, I'm excited about this project because we get to explore so many different types of systems and worlds. And so that's a thing that I'm really pumped about is like figuring out like, Oh, there's other stuff that isn't this problematic (laughs) that can do cool shit. Yeah. What a, what a treat. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DN Drama Nerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsandDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. <laughs>